So there's great news, and that's in the beginning. Man was blameless, and God walked amongst them. And he gave them instructions on what they could do. And then there's bad news. They didn't follow the instructions. <laughs> uh, they did up until the point that they allowed someone else to cause doubt on the very creator who created them. Good news. Long before the Lord created them, he had a plan in motion to save a people onto him. And throughout the scriptures, we see that work in progress. Or as Pastor Mike said before, that point between, you know, we repent of our sins and we put our faith in Jesus and we receive the Spirit of God, that point where we're justified instantly by Jesus. He looks at us and he sees Jesus. And then that not yet fully sanctified peace where we're t being taken on a walk, where that righteousness that's been imputed onto us through Jesus is now being worked in us and we're being transformed more into this Jesus Christ. It is along that path that we have a certain view of God that he's constantly changing on the right, to the right view of God. So we can say the word sovereign God and not fully comprehend what we're saying. I can say it not even a clue at times. And other times, like, I think I got a glimpse of this. That he's supreme ruler, that he's supreme creator, that he's sustainer. That before, there was no before. He's always existed. And it is through those lenses again that we, even in that brokenness, as we are being taken through our sanctification walk, we are trying to sometimes take Christ and shrink him down to an area that's easy for us to accept in our flesh. And then we don't have to change at all. And so, that is what we're going to talk about today. The difference between what we think and what he has to say in the scripture, which is God's sovereignty. Now, we could spend years talking on, preaching on, studying God's sovereignty. No, beyond that, decades. And still would not get anywhere near who he really is but we can get a greater glimpse of it. And we're just going to take a, a dive into a few pieces uh, of his sovereignty. And that is God's sovereign control and God's sovereign authority. And so turn with me to Proverbs 16.33. Now, this particular verse is not something we're going to stay on. It's just a launching pad. But the scripture is so rich with verses on who God is and his control that just in my own studies, I came across this and thought this would be a great launching pad. And as Proverbs 16, says, you know, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Or if you look at a King James Version, it says the lot is cast in the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. I like that part because that disposing part is like I'm taking something and I'm disposing of it. I'm controlling where it goes, what I do with it. And so when we think of that with God, we are committing our actions, but he is weaving masterfully the flow of it onto him. 
Lot casting, I found quite interesting because, you know, we've heard different pieces over time. It was a practice of using either straws or pebbles, you know, pebbles in a pot or straws or dice rolling, whatever you want to call that, that are thrown to determine a decision. It was a way of eliminating the biases or influences from the participants. In more recent times in Europe, small balls of different colors began to be used, and this practice became known as casting ballots, in which this term then became synonymous with voting as whatever method was used to cast one's vote. But the most important part is that in the Bible, the casting of lots is mentioned over 70 times in the Old Testament, over several times in the New Testament. And I'm not advocating all of a sudden we go to lot casting. <laughs> See people going outside, all right, let's figure this out. <laughs> Grabbing rocks off the ground and throwing. But what I am talking about is the early Christians who did do lot casting, the expectation is the results were on to God. That they were had a basic understanding that he was a sovereign God and that however the outcome, they were going to trust into him because he was that much in control. And one of the most important parts of this also to point out is that when lot casting occurred for the early Christian, it was preceded by prayer. They didn't just go and just throw things. They would pray onto the results. So again, it's that we expect the outcome to be onto God. Well, someone else would just say, oh, you just luck of the draw. You know, sovereignty is defined as supreme ruler or possessing supreme or ultimate power. And we can have many different definitions, but I think it's great for us to just glean into looking into saints of the past and what the Lord has done. And, you know, I came across uh, Arthur Walkington Pink, or A.W. Pink, anyone's ever heard of him, you may have not. But uh, this guy was born in Nottingham, England in 1886. He was converted to a Christ while a spiritualist medium. That's like someone who tries to speak to the dead spirits and so on. So that's quite a conversion to go from there to being a believer in our Lord and Savior. He briefly attended the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois, in 1910 before taking up his pastorate at Silverton, Colorado. Little known to the outside world, he pastored other churches in the United States and Australia before finally returning to his homeland. Setting in Stoneway on the Isle of Lewis, Scotland, there he died almost unnoticed. By that date, however, the magazine he had started called in 1922, The Studies and Scriptures, was feeding several of the men who were leading a return to doctrinal Christianity, including Martin Lloyd-Jones, Douglas Johnson, the founder of InterVarsity, and in book form after his death, his writings became widely, very widely read across the world. Things like the sovereignty of God, gleanings from Paul, etc. And he says it very well on the sovereignty of God. He says, to say that God is sovereign is declared that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? That's from the book of Daniel. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels. 
thwart his purpose or resist his will. It's from the book of Psalms. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor amongst nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potent, which is really ruler, king of kings, and the Lord of lords. That's from 1 Timothy. Such is the God of the Bible. We are talking about a creator that has ultimate control and authority through his power. And as I mentioned before, that's what we're going to take a brief dive into, God's sovereign control. I'm going to go across a lot of different verses, so don't feel the need to catch up. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> so sovereign control. Sovereign control means that everything happens according to God's plan and intention, and nothing will prevent him from accomplishing his purpose. Psalms 115.3 further elaborates on this. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He doesn't do all that we please. Or Isaiah 14, 24 through 27, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. In other words, God's plans and purposes has the last say in the world. And I admit, sometimes in the, midst, in the middle of things, it's hard to see that, isn't it? And it's hard to believe it, isn't it, at times? Let's be real. Sometimes we shy away from that. Just because we've repented of our sins <clears throat> and put our faith in Jesus, remember, he's doing a good work in us, so there are still pockets of unbelief continually. So what else in his control? He controls the course of human events. Psalm 33, 9 through 11, for he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God's will prevails. The God who made the world also rules it according to his own purpose. That is awesome news. Because I don't know about you, if it was according to my will, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> so let's think this for a moment. Since God spoke everything into existence by the power of his word, then there's nothing that can oppose him since it derives its powers from him. Does that make sense? Authority. Control. How can the clay, I know we've said that, you hear that all the time, but it is so true. How can the clay oppose the potter when the clay can't do anything until the potter mows it? Nothing. And I can't, I don't know about you, I cannot hear that enough to humble myself before this great God. What else? He controls calamity, disasters. Oh, this is great because I, in my own personal study, I've been going through the book of Amos and uh, it's actually both heart-wrenching and amusing at the same time. So in Amos 3.6, he says, if a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? 
what's amusing about it is that when you start to read the first few chapters of Amos, the Israelites were actually, and they're broken into the northern and southern kingdom, and they're both thinking, yeah, the Lord's going to stick it to our enemies. And they're all happy about it. And Amos said, well, hold up. <laughs> He's also going to stick it to you too. And he tells them why. That they have done things such as oppress the poor for the sake of greater wealth. They've exchanged their righteousness for like a pair of sandals. They have turned to ritualistic religion. They've been shown the light, but they've purposely rejected it. And so calamity is going to come upon them. But not because God is just angry and just wants to hurt someone. But because in the midst of that, he is pulling a people back onto him to understand where they have gone astray and to be repentant of it and be broken over it and then to be transformed in greater fashion onto him. And I think we can take great, great satisfaction in that great news. Because when I experience some struggles, Sometimes I was like, Lord, really? Then I have to think about it and say, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> of course. What are you teaching me in this? What are you teaching me in the middle of this? As it says in Psalm 104 and 147, 148, he makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire, his servants. He unleashes his winds and the waters to flow. Lightning and hail, snow and cloud, powerful wind that executes his command. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes your glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from your throne. Complete, complete control. Even when it doesn't seem like it to us. He controls our circumstances. I know that's a hard one, especially when you're suffering. I admit, two weeks ago, my father passed away, and how it all happened was beyond what I could have had planned for. But yet, after bits of suffering and bits of pain, I realized that the good news is that the Lord knew this long before we all even existed and that he is doing a work onto him. So instead of me being angry at all with the Lord, I turn to him and say, Lord, what is it you want me to see in this? One of the things we found uh, in just going through my father's apartment is that he had all these pieces. He always wrote things down on pieces of paper. And one of the things that he did, he had tons of scripture verses that he wrote down, tons, um, about the gospel itself. And anyone who knew me knew I had my own doubts of, you know, where he was in his walk and even questioned him and challenged him on it. And so there was much. As, as my wife would say, it's like thousands of pages. <laughs> of things that he had written down. What was the Lord trying to say in that? I'm in control, Charles. 
and I am laying myself out before your father. Don't worry, I got this. That's why I was able to take comfort and say, you know what? Wherever he was, I know one thing. The Lord laid out in detail who he was before him. And we've got to approach unfortunate circumstances with understanding that the Lord does not do anything to hurt us. But we live in a fallen world. And it's so easy to say in the midst of it, isn't it? When we're not the ones suffering. Oh, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. But God loves us and he's working a great will onto him to transform us. James 4, 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you're a bit of smoke that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, I, when I first hit that, actually for me, when I became a believer, the book of James is what I really cling to. One, because I don't like a lot of reading and it was short. But two, because it was just powerful in what it was saying. And I, I cling to it and still love it, even though all the books of the Bible are equally awesome. Um, it's one of my favorites. But I often find myself saying the Lord wills. And then my little one, five and a half year, will say, but hey, why do you keep saying that? Every time we talk about doing so, I say, well, if the Lord wills it, then we'll do it. And it was great because it was an opportunity for us to talk about the realities of Christ. I just said, I just can't make promises on something I don't know a little bit. I call it a little bit. I say a little bit, I just can't make promises on things I don't know. But I do know God's in, in charge. He's in control. So if he does allow it and that's his will, then we will go do what you want to do on this. Or we will go do this. Or we will spend this time. Or we will go see this family. And then she'll sit back and get quiet. And I know she's thinking the wheels are going on. I'm thinking, praise the Lord. That's a start. <laughs> but that is so true, right? We should increasingly say, if the Lord wills it. I found that it's a springboard to talk about why you believe what you believe. Hey, why do you always say, if the Lord wills it? Well, because the Lord tells us that. He's in control. Do you believe he controls your circumstances? And you don't have to get the standard. I know sometimes we believe, sometimes we don't. It's not a trick question. <laughs> do you believe he controls your circumstances? What is your response? What is your response to this? Now, just hold that thought, because we'll get to responses uh, towards the end. He controls the choices of world leaders. Ooh, I know that's hard. <laughs> Even when I was going through this, I said, oh, this is going to be interesting when I say this. In light of the recent strand of politics, <laughs> last few months, I know people on either side and Hey, you know what, so long as you are doing it through the word of God and not caught in a snare of darkness uh, where you're caught in the weeds on something the Lord doesn't want you to be on, then by all means, be on whatever side you choose. But yet, I will say I have heard a great many people claim this or that on either side that this, this, is, the, this is the Lord's guy. He's definitely going to, he's going to win. He's going to win. This is the Lord's guy. And I'm thinking, how do you know that? I just know. Okay. He controls the world leaders. He tells us that in Romans 13. No one is in their place without him putting them there. So no matter how wicked you think they are or how godly you think they are, 
They are there according to God's will, and he will accomplish his purpose onto the people accordingly. And we have got to take comfort in that and avoid the weeds so we can see clearly on what God wants us to focus on. Amen? Proverbs 21.1, a king's heart is a water channel in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. I think of it like a farmer, and he's got this irrigation ditch, and he's very masterful, and he's, oh, well, I'm saying it in Evans. <laughs> and, uh, and he's masterful at it, and he's making changes to control where the water goes. He's in complete control. And so it is God with our leaders. Temptation. But do you know that God has even control over that? 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that temptation is tempered by God's own hand before it even touches us. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation, he will always provide a way of escape. I tell you, sometimes, whether you're in the midst of anger, whatever you're going, you're like, Lord, whatever that escape is, make it soon. <laughs> Please, make it soon. <laughs> but God reveals a sovereign promise and a saving plan. He limits the power of temptation and provides an escape hatch, which means no sin is irresistible. Every temptation we face can be overcome. And those are the things that we want to meditate on. God is that much in control. And I'll tell you, in my experiences with false religions, they cannot grasp that. My, my uncle is um, in a high position at Jehovah Witness, and they just can't grasp. They can't grasp that. They feel like the Lord's doing something different right now. He's not intimately involved. And so I remember when my grandmother had passed away several years, and we all gathered together. Uh, and typically what the Jehovah Witnesses do is, so we'd have two services, one for Christians and the other for Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, so at the Jehovah Witness, they started first, and they got up and he says, I don't care what anyone says, when you die, you die. You do not go anywhere else. It was bleak. It was dark. Pastor got up on our side and says, there's hope. There is great hope. Because this grandma proclaimed the name of Jesus, and we know that her spirit is with God. And that was huge. And what they typically do when that happens, as soon as you start talking about Jesus, they get up and walk out. And they wait for about 30 minutes, and they come back. It's another way of protecting them from hearing the truth. That part... is important because we tend to, in our brokenness, we tend to, in our brokenness, again, try to morph God on the level of what best is easy for us to handle. So when I was talking to my cousin about it before we left that funeral, he just said, do you really think God is involved in the New Testament? It, it, that was only Old Testament stuff. And I said, how did you come to that conclusion, cousin? 
And I said, and, and it was by the grace of God. I didn't say any, I, I didn't really know I was going to say it. And I said, okay. So there's scripture they have that still remains true, and there's scripture that they've just gone off the edge, and they've gone in a different place on. So on what I knew was true for them still, that's true for us, I just asked them, I said, so let's go back to what the Lord said to Satan in reference to Job. What did he say? And then my cousin looked at me and goes, I give you permission. <laughs> I said, exactly. So you're doubting God's sovereignty and control in all of this? And there it is, isn't it? That we have to understand that it's not about the way we view things. We're the work in progress, not God's word. And I can't say it enough. It is not God's word. It is us. Let's think about this in more detail about the temptation and what that looks like because it's a piece I missed out and lost my thought just for a quick moment. As one commentator put it, let's think about this when it comes to temptation and God's control, which is exactly a portion of what I was trying to explain to my family. Think about what must take place behind the scenes before, doing, and after temptation for God to pull this off. He must be involved on every level. He must know fully the strength of our spiritual and attraction that the temptation uniquely has on us. He must constantly keep a leash on Satan. He must temper temptation's power. And he must bear witness to a superior satisfaction than the tempting offer so that we have a way of escape. When you think about that, that's a lot of work the Lord is doing on our behalf. He is actively and intimately involved all the time. So we dare not think of, well, he's not involved, he's doing something. He is actively working on our behalf. Because we need it. Without him, we're surely dead. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? What is your response to that belief? Hold your thoughts. <laughs> we're going to get to that part. God's sovereignty is more than control that includes his authority. What the Lord commands, we must do. In Exodus... He led the Israelites. He led them out of captivity. And because of their sinful ways and how long they had been in captivity, he graciously gave them civil and ceremonial laws and the commandments. And, what, and when you look at the book of Leviticus, I mean, when I first looked at Leviticus, I just thought, what in the world, Lord? This is like a, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> Might as well be physics. And then after a while, you, just, you know, by his grace, you start to see more bits and pieces. But then when you really look at it, it is a detailed amount of love. The whole book of Leviticus is a detailed amount of eternal, extensive love onto the people he is molding <clears throat> into his son's likeness. So when we look at Leviticus, we should actually be charged up about it. That is good news, that God would care enough about us to go in that sort of details, to show them this is sin, and this is what it looks like to be holy unto me. You shall be holy, for I am holy, and then I will come amongst you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. How many times did he say that? That is at his heart's desire. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? Walked 
with Adam and Eve. His heart's desire to walk amongst those he created, and they will glorify them, glorify him in all they do. He says in Genesis that he created us male and female, right, in his image. In Isaiah 43, 7, he says to glorify him. That is huge. We can't say it enough. What is our purpose in life? No matter what we're doing, vacation, grocery store, time off, work, to glorify God in all we do. It may sound a little silly, but we actually can glorify God in everything that we do. It is because God is sovereign Lord that we must obey him. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. In these words, I command you today shall be on your heart. So we have this great creator who knows he's holy, 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 created us blameless. We became sinners, and his desire is for us to return to that which he originally had us in, to be blameless and be with him for an eternity. It's a little bit now I've been going through New City Catechism. I think we're on question 25 now, and it gets a little bit deeper and deeper, which is pretty awesome. I love that, doing that with her and listening to the music as well. And the first question is, you know, what is our only hope in life and death? Which, you know, we heard Gabby do by video. She did a fantastic job going through four questions. That was awesome. I heard that little voice in the background. It was so cute. It was awesome, though, because it's just kingdom stuff happening in that heart. But one of the things I would do sometimes in my own personal study or just independent of that, I would say, you know, there's a root verse that they also show in here as to behind this question. And so then I would look at it and turn it into my own personal study. So in the New City Catechism question, what is our only hope in life and death? That we do not belong, that we're not our own, but belong to God. The root of that is Romans 14, 7 through 8, which is actually an awesome verse. None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live unto the Lord. If we die, we die unto the Lord. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That is a powerful verse. Whether you accept or reject God, you're still going to live unto him and die unto him, and you will give an account unto him. Because he is Lord, his authority is absolute. John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself into him. The Lord is saying, listen, if you love me, you will keep my commands. God is a jealous God because he knows he's holy, holy, holy. And so the only option is for us to be on to him. The other option is eternal hell, lake of fire. Which when you look at Luke 16, 24, it doesn't sound pretty good. Where he's saying, I am in anguish in these flames. I just think there is going to be a suffering unknown to man right now beyond what we could possibly comprehend. Because you consider that we are both spirit and flesh. And so when Christ returns, we will receive a new resurrected body. 
and then that spirit will be joined with that resurrected body, and now it will be what has started, that great work will be in completion with a new heaven and earth, and we will stand before God and be able to look him in the face. For the unbeliever, now you suffer not just in spirit where you are now, but then when the end comes, now you will suffer in both spirit and flesh. That is a suffering people that I would not wish on my worst enemy because we just don't know. When it comes to God, it's like if you, you don't know what you don't know, and you know it's going to be a lot more intense than we could possibly imagine. Amen? So what is our response? We're right here towards the end here, and, and I kept asking throughout, what is your response if you believe? And there's several things I, I want to talk about. And, I, and you heard me say this many times. You've heard Pastor Mike say it uh, plenty of times. What is our response to God's sovereignty and control and authority? What should that look like? Number one, our pursuit of this sovereign God must be daily in his word. What does that look like? If anyone says to me, I'm struggling, I'm having a hard time, our marriage, uh, my singleness, whatever it is, one of the first things I'm going to think about, okay, what is your walk like? Why? Because that's at the heart of it. God created us onto him to glorify him. He's holy, holy, holy. So in this already justified and not yet fully sanctified walk, we are being stretched and grown and transformed into Christ's likeness. And so there is still brokenness and so there. And as Pastor Mike preached about over a week or two ago, in that sanctification part, we do have a responsibility all means of grace that the Lord has laid out before us, we must pursue ever increasing more. We have work to do. So my question is, what is your daily walk like? What does it look like? I didn't ask you, and I know a lot of people, some people have a lot of kids. They, they're working. They got a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot happening. But I'm not asking you how busy you are. I'm asking you, what does your daily walk look like in pursuing the word of God? Because at the end, that's what it comes down to. We're not going to stand before God. He goes, you know, I know you had a lot going on. Come on in. <laughs> no. <laughs> not happening. And now, at the same time, I don't want to play down the fact that it's sometimes just to get rest. Some of you are just like, I just need to get rest. And my head's like right here below the water. I just need to get up and breathe a little bit. I get that. And one of the things I've said to many of you is that it is the quantity, not the quality. The quality will come out of the quantity. So, for instance, how do you pursue the Word of God? How often do you pursue Him throughout the day? So when you go to work, you're living your workout 8, 12 hours a day or more. So then you're an expert at it. Well, it must be that with the Word of God. So you need to pursue Him throughout the day. So what does your daily walk look like? When I get up in the morning, my walk didn't always look good. <laughs> like anything. And I feel, still feel like I don't look like anything. But I do find myself doing a couple different things, which brings me to the next one, an increasing consistent prayer life. And I talk about both of these together. We must be praying continually to this great God, not because he needs us to pray to him. He needs us to understand and he's growing us, that he is the only solution to our problems. So then we don't falsely pray to everything else, every other shiny thing, without even recognizing we're praying to every other shiny thing. 
we don't listen to every thing out in the world and then try to throw Jesus on it. We pray to God continually, Lord, this is what you've laid upon my heart. Why is that important? Because when you actively pray before God, you, everything in you has to focus on it. When you speak, it's as, as the Lord says, what comes from the mouth stems from the heart. And so when you, have, when you pray to God openly and actively, you are all in without even recognizing. Your heart, your flesh, you're all in. You have to focus at that moment, even when you feel like you're not. So typically, this is what I do. In the morning before I even get out of bed, because I know that I am lazy, and I know that the moment that I get out of bed, at some point in time, it's going to be increasingly difficult to touch the Word of God and touch God, period. Let's be real. So then I've gotten to the point, as soon as I'm in bed, as soon as I wake up, prayer time right then and there. Praying with our God, pleading with Him. And I think it's very important that in our prayer life, we don't get used to just asking Him stuff. I think it's good for us to first go to Him on his attributes. Because I think, I know that I need to think about that God is holy, holy, holy. And even when I feel like it's no good in the moment in my heart, I'm going to keep saying it until God, who's doing a good work in me, stirs me up. So we want to start with attributes to God. Look them up. Look up a whole list of attributes. Go in the concordance. Google it. Be careful where you Google <laughs> And look up the attributes and pray through those attributes. Take one. Sometimes I'll take an attribute, and I'll just focus on that attribute throughout the week. And that will be part of my praying on the God. Then from there, confessions. Actively confess. As we actively confess, we are actively, God knows that we need to recognize before him that we're the problem, not him. Thankfulness. You know, we so often, I know I so often go about my days, and I'm not thankful for every little thing the Lord is doing. I forget that when I wake up in the morning, he's giving me breath. Someone else is not waking up. When I come back home, someone else is not coming back home. Someone else is suffering something I'm not. There is much food on the table. The job you have, he softens someone's heart so they would, you'd find favor with them and you have a job. The schoolwork you're doing, it's just very important. And then our supplication to bring out our ass of God. We are going through attributes, confession, thankfulness, and our supplications. I think it's very important to do that. And then from there, I go into the Word of God, even if it's just for five minutes. And I might do it several times in a day or one time in a day, but I know that I need to touch Him. And I'll tell you what happens is like when you go to work. What you get used to doing, when you're not doing it, you start getting convicted of it because you're so used to doing it. And so... I don't say that to point fingers at myself or anything. I say that to point to the fact that when I'm not doing that now, I feel more naked by thanks to his will. So what are you doing in prayer and pursuing the word of God? Next, increased obedience to him. You want to give an account so that his authority over me increasingly exists in all areas of my life, not just when I'm at church. So you want to look at how are you? Is he increasing in you, as what Pastor Mike said, from self-reliance to God-dependence? You want to actually think about that. You make plans for other things, right? So let's make plans on, hey, how am I increasing in obedience to God? Second Corinthians 10.5 says, destroy all arguments and lofty opinions against the knowledge of the Word of God. Scripture tells us 
Man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are supposed to be always in the word of God, and within there, we should be recognizing <coughs> by his grace where there's increased obedience and where there's not. Increased loyalties to him over all others. I was talking about a brother, <coughs> a brother about this the other day. Uh, Matthew 10 is, is for I love that. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, this is not saying that you're going to hate everyone around you, but it's saying that God must come first. He must be the ultimate control and authority in your life. So then through all those relationships, you can do them according to his will, not your own. I don't know about you, but in the relationships I have, there is a draw, a pull where I sometimes desire to, I just want to do what pleases them or what I think pleases him, not what God tells me to do. Deepening confidence in him. Struggling with anxiety, with fear. Hey, those are real things. Those are real things. But by his grace, we should be, as we pursue his word, pursue him in prayer, have increased obedience to him, increasing our loyalty of choosing him over anyone else, our confidence should be deepening onto him. And the things that we have anxiety and fear about, by his grace, should even just a little bit move on the needle where he's increasing and we're decreasing in that. Does that make sense? So these five things are things that I think we can write down and actually look through on a daily basis, Lord. Lord, where am I? How am I pursuing your word? No excuses. No excuses. I'm going to pursue you and work with whatever I have. Five, ten minutes, twenty minutes, an hour, whatever it is, I'm going to do it. Until it becomes such a habit, I feel naked without it. Prayer to you all the time. Because I'm recognizing I need you in everything, no matter how small it is. Increased obedience onto you. That I'm actually not just reading and praying to you, I'm actually living it out. And my loyalties onto you is increasing to the fact that I am showing more of your real love to all those around me instead of showing my fleshly love and putting them first. And my confidence is going through the roof in you, in all things, that I'm no longer being blown back and forth, but I'm now more anchored deeper on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you (laughs) that none of it depends on us. That you are a sovereign, holy, holy, holy God. And that you love us so much beyond what we can comprehend in these fallen, broken vessels. That you sent your only son. That he who knew no sin would take on our sin and we might take on the righteousness of God. 